Hey guys, you're listening to episode 20 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're joined by David Johnson, the founder and CEO of Doulas Partners. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan Hobelman and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Man, do we have a good episode for you today. We are joined by former businessman and pastor David Johnson, the founder and CEO of a fantastic organization called Dulas Partners. Dulas Partners serves as a sort of missions mutual fund, sending resources where they will get the greatest return on investment. They partner with established, successful church planting ministries that already have deep relationships with indigenous pastors around the world who are spreading the gospel in their regions. They are listed as one of the top 10 most effective missions organizations by ROI Ministry, which rigorously screens missions organizations for effectiveness. More than that, David shares a bigger picture vision for what God is doing on a global scale in the area of missions. In just the last year, there's been a beautiful collision of technology, manpower, and collaboration among many missions organizations that has never before been possible. Stay tuned to hear why David thinks these new developments have the potential to complete the Great Commission in our lifetime by bringing the gospel to all peoples, nations, and tongues. Guys, this conversation blew my mind. You will not want to miss it. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, then you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or somebody who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. And with that, let's get started. All right. Here we are with David Johnson from Dulas Partners. David, thanks so much for joining us today. We're, we're really excited to get the chance to sit down with you. Well, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate the invitation and uh, looking forward to all that God has for us for tonight. So I know that you have uh, a lot going on and that you guys have had an incredible journey through Dulas Partners and uh, well before that as well. Why don't you just get us started off telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today? Well, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, so we're from L.A. That would be lower Alabama. I met my wife there as a teenager, and we were high school sweethearts and fell in love and got married. And uh, it's hard to believe that we'll be married 45 years in October. Uh, Has been my helpmate and my life mate. Couldn't have done what I've done in ministry without her support. So I was a business guy for 14 and a half years. I, I love the competition of business and was minding my own business uh, when God began to call me into ministry. And, uh, you know, we had two kids. Uh, We have a son who's hard to believe getting ready to be 42 and a daughter that's 39. And they were small then. And and yet God, uh, in his providence, uh, called me to be a pastor, which I got to pastor in a local church for 20 years, which I absolutely love serving people, serving the Lord, teaching God's word, just being a part of 
you know, people coming into the world, pouring into them, you know, being a part of uh, seeing people transition from this life to the next. And so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a, an incredible experience as a pastor of 20 years and was in Mobile and was extremely happy pastoring Day Spring Baptist Church there. And really, uh, you know, Dulas came because God woke me up in the middle of the night in October of 07 at the age of 51 and said, I have a new assignment for you. And uh, he actually spoke to me in business terms. I, I have almost a double major in business and religion. And so I studied economics and finance and accounting and leadership and management and those things. And he really said, I want to move you from micro to macro ministry. I had no idea what he meant by that. I mean, he just kind of came in and downloaded and was gone. And little did I know what that journey uh, from that point to this point was going to be. It's just been an amazing journey. And God allowed me to actually through a quiet time. He gave me the names of three men and all three of them were in Birmingham, Alabama. And I drove to Birmingham and talked to those three men. And uh, one has been a significant investor from that day till this day. The other two, Wayne Myrick and Scott Garoski, and I, the three of us, God was working in, and it was really out of that meeting, and then the couple of months following that Dulas was born. I find that very interesting, how clearly God spoke to you, and I'm interested to hear kind of what happened from there going forward. So what happened next from there? Well, I can really kind of rewind to September of 07, I was just starting to teach uh, through the book of Philippians, and uh, I got to Philippians 1.1. Actually, I was preparing the kind of the introductory message, and I got to Philippians 1.1, and it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, bring you this letter. And it was as if the word bondservant was bolded in my Bible. Now, it wasn't actually bolded, but it just looked like it was bolded on the page of my Bible. And I'm a little embarrassed to say, because I, you know, I was trained in Greek, you know, I I would have obviously missed this on my vocab test, but I I couldn't remember what the word bondservant was in the Greek. And so I went and began to do a word study and came to the word doulos, uh, began to look at translations of doulos. Servant is a terrible translation Bond servants better, but it's still not the depth. You know, one of the things we lose in translation in biblical language is, is the depth of those words and phrases. And so really, God showed me that the word doulos means slave. Uh, obviously, it's not talking about human slavery. It's talking about spiritual slavery. Jesus says in Matthew 6, as you know, you can't serve two masters, 20, 25% of the population in first century were slaves. So speaking in context, you know, that word got inside of me and God would not leave me alone. I mean, every waking moment, the word doulos just came to my mind. Uh, It was almost like it was on every radio station, every billboard. I mean, it was just crazy y'all how, how God just kept, teaching me and urging me and speaking to me. Everything I read 
Uh, you know, the word doulos appears in the New Testament 141 times. Most people don't know that, but that's a lot. And really and truly, when I got to the end of that 30 days, it really occurred to me as a follower of Jesus that I really, I mean, my master only expected one thing from me, and that was obedience. What I didn't know was he was preparing me for waking me up in the middle of the night in October, just the next month, because it was in that preparation that really, I guess, six or seven weeks of preparation that when he woke me up and spoke so clearly, I, I'm sure y'all have had this happen to you before, but you know, I mean, when I woke up, all my faculties were firing, you know, it was two thirty-two AM on the clock. Don't you just love digital clocks? But all my faculties were firing and I could clearly hear the voice of God. Now I've never heard God's voice, you know, audibly. I know some have, I have not, but it was like this booming voice to me that said, I have a new assignment for you. I mean, he came in and was gone. I'm like, okay, Lord, what do I do with that? I don't know if you guys have ever had that happen before where God spoke to you. And I was like, okay, I heard you. I, I kind of heard what the, what you're, you know, at least the start of leading me to do, but I have no idea the how to that or the answer to that. And so I just prayed and proceeded. And y'all, I, I mean, I, I'm pastoring a church running 1800. I, I've got, I've got plenty to do. It's not like I didn't have enough to do, but it was just like this constant. And then about 30 days after that, we were kind of on this 30 day cycle. You know, I was in my quiet time and, you know, these three men are men that I have such love and respect for. And yet their names came to me really out of nowhere. And, um, so I, I, I took a, a day's vacation and I drove from Mobile to Birmingham and, sat across from uh, these three men and and that was really kind of the backstory of this calling hearing the voice of God and yet he he always prepares us for what's next and that was certainly true for me so what was it like to start to transition from as you said micro ministry to macro ministry how did you start that process well, first of all, let me say the three of us had no idea what we were doing. Uh, Wayne Meyer, Scott Garoski, and I, I mean, we had never even heard the name indigenous. We had no idea, you know, what macro ministry meant or looked like. You know, our mission's background was Western. So when you have a Western mission's background, You've seen people called out of congregations. God leads them to a particular part of the world. They're in language school. There's a huge sacrifice of transition. They're trying to learn the culture. They're trying to, you know, be able to communicate with people. It's very difficult. It's slow. And the reason I knew that was because I saw so many missionaries come back after three years from the field on their furlough and they sat across from me in my office going, man, David, you know, I thought we were going to be able to go in there, see immediate fruit. It was going to be exciting. We're going to see God. And they did see God at work and they did see some fruit, but it just wasn't a lot. And they would start asking, you know, us to continue to pray, continue to give, come try to help us. 
And so that was Wayne's story and Scott's story. We have incredible love and respect for and hold in great high esteem the Western missionaries who have blazed trails over the last 300 years. There have been a lot of foundations that have been poured. What God did in us was to say, I think now you need to take and build on the foundations that have been laid, and you need to do that through the indigenous. So that that was kind of a, a start for us. And um, I know Scott Garoski had met Manny Fernandez, who's the president and CEO of World Link Ministries, and 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 all that sort of fired together. You know, God gave us someone that we could go to the field with. I'll never forget. You know, my first trip to Cuba, which was, I guess that would have been February of 2008. And so we're, we're trying to figure out exactly what it is that God wants us to do. I, I'll never forget a phone call. I, I laugh about this all the time. I, I never forget I got a phone call from Scott in December of 07 and uh, Scott Garoski. And he said, so, David, I, I really think the Lord's in this and we need you to come run this thing. And I said, Scott, run what thing? We don't have a thing. You know, we've, we just started kind of dreaming and talking. We don't, we don't even have a thing. He said, yeah, but we're going to have a thing and we think you need to come and run this. So January comes around and, you know, he, he invites me to come go to to Cuba and, you know, I, I really do begin to pray, you know, God, what is it that you want me to do? My yes is on the table. And so I got on an airplane in February of 08, flew to Havana, uh, got off the plane in Havana and got in a van. And I met a couple of the Cuban leaders and just began to talk with them. And literally, guys, within 15 minutes, God said, this is what I have for you. So, you know, I did what, you know, most people would say, you're crazy. I came back. I called a meeting of the personnel committee at our church and resigned. And said, you know, I'll, I'll give you whatever time you need for the transition. But this is what God has for us. And you guys may enjoy this part of the story. So I preached my last three sermons on Sunday morning at Dayspring in 2008 on April Fool's Day. Yep, April Fool's Day. I got in my car and drove from Mobile to Birmingham. That was the first official start day of Dulas. Actually, our 501c3 didn't come in until April the 11th. So we just celebrated 13 years. Uh, But honestly, guys, I mean, seriously, I'm driving to Birmingham and and I'm alone in the car with my thoughts. And I'm just going, man, Lord, I hope I haven't missed you. And I hope I'm not a fool. Well, looking back, man, I'm so glad I said yes, because I'd have missed so much. Matter of fact, the most productive 13 years of my life. I would have missed that had I not said yes. I want to come back to, you know, what you guys are doing at Dulas Partners now and what that ministry looks like. But before we get there, I just want to hear your thoughts because you have a very clear relationship with Christ and with God and, and you 
have a unique line of communication with him. And I don't think that's a coincidence or by accident. And I I think that's through intentionality and a long-term development of that relationship. But I'm interested just to hear your thoughts on for somebody that wants to follow Christ and to hear what God is calling them into, what you would say to, to somebody that's trying to do that like you have. Well, I'm, I was incredibly blessed that I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, both my mom and dad were believers. They, they're now with the Lord. My, my dad was not as grounded in the Word as my mom was. My dad taught me things like integrity. My dad would say, you know, don't do anything to give our family a black eye. Always tell the truth. Now, he didn't say, let your yes be yes and your no be no like the scripture does, but he would say, David, you're only as good as your word. He taught me to respect authority, to give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. That was my dad. My mom read the Bible through every year. Every conversation with my mom was a a biblical, spiritual, gospel conversation. And I'm so thankful that she was such a person of the word because the foundation that was laid for me through my mom, biblically, to give me a love for the scriptures, really came from my mom. Now, I was very fortunate. I grew up at Spring Hill Baptist Church in Mobile. And little did I know what God was doing. I know what he was doing now. I didn't know it at the time, but... There were about four or five business leaders in our church, for some reason, took an interest in me. You know, there's one thing to come to faith in Christ. It's another thing to have somebody lovingly disciple you. And so I I was so blessed to have these men who were extremely successful in their careers, and yet they loved Jesus, and really before it came you know, business's mission is a relatively new term in our, you know, kind of in our culture the last, whatever, 10 or 15 years. But these guys were doing business's mission back when I was 10, 11, 12, 15 years old. And so they, they were talking to me about how you truly work as unto the Lord. How, how do you steward what God has given you? And it just, it just, helped God's word become alive to me because it was more than a Sunday school lesson. It was an application of the scripture in my life. And then I met my sweet bride. We met when we were 16 years old. And and quite frankly, I had never met a teenager who had a walk with the Lord the way she did. And so as we began to date and now, we didn't get it all right all the time, so don't, don't you know, none of us get it right all the time. But this, this, there was this thing that as she was running after the things of the Lord and I was running after the things of the Lord, she had a firm foundation. I had a firm foundation. It helped us as we married to put things in proper perspective right out of the gate We knew what my role as a husband was, what her role as a wife was, what our role as parents would be. As I as I love her like Christ loved the church, and as you know, as as she was respectful of me, and that we raised our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we tithed right out of the gate. 
So, so we, you know, that was a thing that I was very fortunate in and that I had that foundation. And along the way, God really intersected me with men who had such a grasp of the word. And, and, and I think that was a part of the whole, you know, formulation for me. And so it was that, it was that love of the word that really, it was never hard for me to have a quiet time. It was never hard for me to spend time on the word because that foundation was so strong. And then, then when I went to school and, and, you know, ended up with a theology degree and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you start having people show up and want to hear a word talk to you from the Bible, you know, it sort of drives you to spend time there, you know? So, so yeah, I think it's the combination of, of the people of my study of the word and, and God, you know, keeping his promise. And that is, you know, I've given you the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. And if you'll be sensitive and you'll be obedient, I'm not trying to hide my voice from you and I'm not trying to hide my will from you. If you'll walk out your faith, then, you know, I'll reveal my will to you. And he's done that. Well, David Keelan and I had the pleasure of sitting down with you and some members from your team a few weeks back, and we got to chat with you and understand a little more about what it is that you do. But for the sake of our listeners, do you mind just sharing what it is that Dulas Partners aims to do and how you go about doing that? Well, I think the the short answer is that Dulas Partners is an international church planting organization that kind of falls short, really, of the depth and the totality of what we do. I mean, so our, our lane from the beginning has been evangelism, discipleship, and then work organically comes out of that as a church plant. We, we talk about it kind of like a funnel. You know, the funnel's pretty broad at the top. That's evangelism. It comes down kind of into the neck of the funnel. That's discipleship. And what naturally comes out of the bottom of that funnel are people who have had a transformational you know, experience with the Lord and old things, you know, have truly passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so, so we really felt like God was calling us to that lane. And quite frankly, you know, in 13 years, we've not wavered from that. It has been interesting to see God widen the lane a little bit because you know, our first eight and a half years or so, you know, our model was very much a saturation model. So to sort of let the listeners know the way we actually function, and I'll talk more about the saturation model in a minute. But so we kind of function like a missions mutual fund It's kind of the way we are structured. And so it's actually a no load, if you would, because what we do is we we had a decision to make early on. And we really made this in the first 30 days. And one of the things the listeners probably wouldn't know is that Dulas was originally named Dulas Ministries. And we ended up filing an amendment to our 501c3 to do an official name change to Dulas Partners because in that 30 days, God really revealed to the three of us that, you know, we really had two paths to carry out this mission that God had given us. We could either, you know, follow 
absolutely the Luke 10 model that says, go to a country or a town or a village, find a man of peace, and start that work from scratch. A biblical, valid, or there was a, a, a discipleship study uh, that was done by Henry Blackaby years and years ago called Experiencing God. And Wayne and Scott and I had been through that study. I had taught it four or five times. And and the, there are seven things that kind of walks you toward being a fully devoted follower of Christ. And step number one says, find out where God's working and join him there. And as we prayed through our what we felt like our two options were, that God was leading us to find out where he's working rather than start from scratch, that we could accelerate taking the gospel further and faster by partnering with other like-minded believers who were in the evangelism, discipleship, and church planting space. And so we changed our name. We had already you know, had our first experience in Cuba. We had already seen up close and personal, you know, what indigenous work looked like. And that really charted our course from then to now. So God has led us to ministry partners. Right now we have four Big Life Ministries, Door International, New Generations, the Timothy Initiative. We go through extensive vetting of our partners before we ever give them any financial gifts. Matter of fact, it's about a 12 to 18 month vetting process that we go through uh, that culminates with us going to the field and seeing the work firsthand. So so kind of the way God led us was find out where I'm working and get in the yoke with people who are like-minded. So we, in essence, you know, function like an extension of the development departments of those ministries. And what's really cool is, is our leadership team, which is basically our full board and our junior board and a couple of strategic partners, have paid the administrative cost since inception, which means every penny that comes into Dulos goes out through these ministry partners to the field. These guys are field experts. They've been in the field 20 years, 30 years, 35 years. They they have accountability and reportability and trainability. They have all those processes honed and functioning well. So we felt like we could come into the space, we can invest money right away and be able to see measurable fruit right away. And so our leadership team covers all the administrative costs has since inception on the front end, and our partners take no administrative costs of the money that we send them off the back end, because that would be double dipping in admin. So they're responsible for their own administration. We're responsible for our own administration. The money, which now is just over $6 million dollars, when we send that money to partners, that money goes out immediately and it goes to support a church planter and their family. And so that's a very different kind of model. You know, I wish we were smart enough to know that we figured that out, but we really feel like the Lord gave us to that, uh, that, that, that approach. And we've seen 
you know, so much more fruit by this communication and collaboration. I'm, I'm talking about real partnerships. I'm not talking about a check. Do what Dulos does with its partners is way more than a check. I mean, we love these guys. We're in the yoke with these guys. You know, we're on a Zoom call with them at least quarterly. What's happening in the field? How can we pray? Give us stories from the field. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. So this is a this is a very different kind of a model, but boy, it's it's really been effective. Yeah, I love that model. And that's one of the things that has drawn me to the, the work that you guys are doing. And I've shared before on the podcast that my wife and I have also both felt called to uh, indigenous missions, supporting indigenous missionaries in their own native regions, you know, from very early on in our marriage. But that being said, I know that there are many people who have some degree of suspicion or or mistrust or misunderstanding about that process. And so maybe you could uh, speak a little bit to somebody who maybe is new to the idea of indigenous missions and is just not sure what to think about it and might feel more comfortable supporting you know, a missionary that they've shaken the hand of and, and have seen in person. Well, let me tell you, there's been Unfortunately, you know, Keelan, what you're talking about there, unfortunately, there have been there's been a lot of money that's been uh, misused in the field. There's been, you know, a lot of things that have been mismanaged. I mean, even more than or in addition to money that's been mismanaged. So, I mean, I can see how someone would be uh, hesitant to send money to a country like Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iran, someplace that, you know, Bhutan. I mean, there, there are countries in Northern Africa and Central and South, you know, that you just can't go to. And there, and there are people that are hesitant to send their money. And I, I fully, fully understand that. You know, we're often asked the question, and this is such a valid question. And I think that, you know, I think this would resonate with your listeners to be able to say, you know, accountability is critically important. So we get asked the question, well, why don't we just send our money directly to your partners? You know, and that's a valid question. And our response is always, obviously, we wouldn't discourage you from do that because we've invested heavily with these partners. We believe in these partners. We vetted these partners way, way more than you have. And, and so we, we would certainly say, if you want to send money directly to Big Life or directly to any of our partners, whatever, you have the right to do that. But they're going to take administrative costs off the money that you send them. That's how they function as an organization. I'm not in any way upset by that. They have to have an admin cost to be able to run the ministry. But if you send it through Dulos, then 100% of that money goes directly to the field. I think a key component of Dulos is our in-country ongoing vetting. So I've been out of the United States probably about 80 times in the last 13 years. I've been all over the world. I've sat in many hut that's got mud walls and thatch roofs. I've preached under mango trees. I mean, I, you know, I've been all over the world. It's been, it's been an amazing experience. But we ask accountability questions everywhere we go. And these accountability questions are so random 
in some remote village. I mean, there's no way a partner could prepare that entry-level church planter to have those answers. So we ask questions like, did you get paid this month? How, how much did you get paid? You know, has your pay ever been interrupted? If your pay has been interrupted, has it been made up? You know, what what was the last theological training you were in? What doctrine were you taught? How did that doctrine change your walk with Jesus, your preaching, your approach? Uh, How many churches have you planted? You know, I've had people say six or seven or eight, and I would say, well, hey, let's go see a couple of them. And so we have an opportunity to go see some of the work, some of the congregations. I always ask the congregations, so how long have you guys been here? And if a pastor has been saying, hey, man, we've just done this church plant, they go, well, we've been here eight years. I'm like, well, we've got a problem there, if that's your answer. So so I think one of the things that people love, because, I mean, the average person giving is not going to be able to go to the field 80 times in 13 years. And not only that, but we've got these relationships that we've built with these partners and they've seen our longevity, not just in the scope of our giving, but the longevity of the partnership and the way we work. And therefore we get seats at the table that someone who's a, I would call a regular investor or donor wouldn't have. I'll give you an example. I was in Zimbabwe I think that was in 2013, and the the pastor that was over not only Zimbabwe, but Malawi and Zambia and Mozambique, there, and there was about 20 of us on the team. Well, he came over to me because he knows me and the relationship that Dulas has with that partner, and he said, we have two church planters that are under discipline. And we've got meetings set up with those two church planters. And I would like for you to sit in on this meeting so you can see how we're trying to be redemptive and yet how we're holding that brother accountable. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about Dulos is the accountability piece. Uh, we have about 450 donors or so now in 26 states. So when we go to the field we have a strong sense of responsibility, first of all, because God's entrusted us with his money. And second of all, so have those, so have those people. And we take that accountability portion extremely serious. So, David, I wanted to dive a little bit into some numbers here. One of the things that really caught my attention, it's right there on your website, are some of the numbers that are on your homepage. So, it seems that Dulas Partners is incredibly effective and efficient with the dollars that are donated. So I was hoping you could share how much does it cost to plant a church? How much does it cost for an indicated decision for Christ? And how are you able to accomplish that? Well, I mean, as you guys know, the the world economy and the U.S. economy are two very different economies. So you know, our guys in Cuba make $25 a month. Our, our guys in Africa, not leaders, but our regular church planters are making 60 a month. And, you know, in India and those people are making 100 a month. So when you, when you look at economies, 
of of scale in in the Western economy versus economies in other parts of the world. I mean, immediately you can see how far dollars go. So when you compare an average Western missionary's family, you know, uh, at least I can speak very accurately through my denomination. It's $120,000 a year to keep a family on the field. And I'm not saying that that it shouldn't be that. I'm just saying it is what it is. And so if you compare that to, you know, someone in Cuba that's making $300 a year, well, then boom, all of a sudden you can you can support 400 church planters for the same price it's costing you to, to support one. And, and again, guys, I mean, I know I say this, but it's worth repeating. I mean, I, I am not anti-Western missionaries. I'm just saying that's not the lane God has given us to run in. And, and, and what we found was the indigenous, they know the language. They know the culture. They know how to navigate the government. They're so ridiculously resourceful. They waste nothing. Americans will drink a bottle of water and pitch that plastic bottle into the trash. Well, the kids rush up to you when you're there. You drink a bottle of water. And, you know, I, I know I've got this picture and it's a really cool picture. I wish I could show it to you and to your, to your listeners. But it's a picture of a little boy who's taken a bottle and sawed it in half. And he's made a car and he's got a string on it. And he's pulling that thing everywhere. I mean, people around the world do so much with almost nothing. All of that plays into those numbers to have a heart for Jesus. Let me just say, they're biblical literalists. They read the word. They believe the word. So many of them have come to faith in Christ through signs and wonders. I I remember I was in uh, Kathmandu. Uh, we were doing some training. Uh, I think there were about 50 church planters there, and we were teaching God's Word, doing some training. And when I wasn't teaching, you know, I would go out because they were videoing their testimonies. Well, at the end of the day, of those 50 church planters, 20 of them were in these remote villages in the Himalayas that had walked four, five, six days to get to the training and 20 of the 50 had come to faith in Christ because Jesus appeared to them in a dream. So I'm like, wow, do you think those guys are turned on? Man, they're running like crazy to reach their countrymen with the gospel. And they have such a sense of urgency. Now, they don't have a death wish, but I can tell you they're willing to put their life on the line for the furtherance of the gospel. And so when you think about that as kind of the background how little it really costs to support a church planter and their family. I mean, I mean, most of them are only meeting one, one meal a day. You know, it doesn't cost them and they have a hut. There's no, they don't have a house moat. Most of them don't have electricity, so they don't have power bill. I mean, so when you look at they have so little, but they have such a love for Jesus and such a heart for their countrymen that they really truly run hard and fast after that. So that's how 7.6 million people have indicated a decision for Christ. And, you know, I think the since inception numbers around 81 cents or something like that. And then what we've seen as far as church plants, 
I think it's about $215 per church plant since inception. Now, those numbers have started creeping up, and we're, those numbers are creeping up strategically as we're starting to do more and more work in the 1040 window, more and more work with unengaged, unreached people groups, more and more work with the deaf. Uh, we're seeing those numbers creep up. So we're, we're trying to balance this saturation model it's kind of a shotgun approach to this very rifle, very focused, you know, let's take the gospel where people have never heard the name of Jesus. And so so as a missions mutual fund, we're, we're kind of trying to balance that. Yeah, you mentioned the saturation model earlier. Can you flush that out a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, that's just a term that's a relatively new term to me, really. Jared Nelms, who's the CEO of the Timothy Initiative used that, and that is kind of in missiology, they say, you know, a, a culture or a people group are, are classified as unreached if they're 2% or less Christian in that nation uh, or that people group. Well, if you get above 2%, then a lot of, of the missions sort of measurement organizations would say that that country's reached. Well, I'm going like, well, 98% of them aren't believers or 97% of them aren't believers. And so we're working in 80 countries. So 34 of those countries are inside the 1040 window. Uh, Obviously, we're still working in countries where the gospel really is going further and faster. And there's not a lot of resistance to and so, man, we're after reaching the entire country as quickly as possible in multiple means, uh, working with not only church planters, but, but churches, established churches that are already in those countries. And so there's this collaboration that really is trying to saturate that country with the gospel and it, the makeup of the country allows it to be that. Uh, there are obviously parts of the world that you would never be able to use that kind of a model because the church is underground. And um, New Generations uses a term that I really like. It's the three ends next nearest neighborhood. And so they're, they're really trying to stay under the radar. You guys are going to find this kind of crazy because I do. There are countries that the underground church use numbers and letters and colors as codes as to when they're going to meet next as the church, where they're going to meet, and what time it's going to be. So, Cody, let's say, you know, we're in this particular country or countries, and we're going to meet at your house 11 o'clock on Thursday night then there's a color and a letter and a code that would say it's going to be at your house. It's going to be on this day. And and then the, and the, and these churches don't meet at the same place or the same time twice. So Keelan, the next time it may be at your house, it may be at 1 AM on Monday. And so it's, it's so, it's so crazy the way things are happening. Uh, that would not be a saturation model because you, you know, you wouldn't be able to do it you know, and stay covert. 
So Keelan and I learned in a previous podcast episode about how small of a percentage of Western giving within the church actually is geared toward foreign missionaries and indigenous missionaries and just the the neediest billion people in the world are receiving such a small share of the giving that is happening from the Western world. And I'm curious, what do you think it would take to complete the Great Commission? You, you're already represented in 80 countries. What, what would it actually take to get this done? Yeah, I would say uh, really there's two things that come to my mind, and I know what you're saying is true because that's one of the things, as we learned this about five years ago, we, we learned about the great imbalance, the great imbalance that's happening, particularly in the 1040 window. So 5.1 billion people inside the 1040 window, 59 countries, less than 3% of all Christendom's missions dollars goes inside the window. Think about that. Only 2 to 3% of all the world's missions dollars are going where there's two-thirds of the world's population. That is, in fact, a great imbalance. When we when learned of that as an organization, that was unacceptable to us. And so we began to strategically move funds and start reallocating resources into the 1040 window to attack this, you know, it's one thing if you don't know about a problem, if you know about a problem, then you're responsible. There's a responsibility to that. So we were in 12 countries at the time. So it wasn't that we weren't doing any work in the 1040 window. We were. But today we're now in 34 countries. You know, Open Door Ministries produces the top 50 most persecuted countries list every year. Well, 44 of those 50 are inside the 1040 window, and Dulos is now working in 28 of those. So we haven't moved out of countries that are using, we'll just use the term saturation model or whatever. We're not, we're not moving out of those countries, but we are being strategic in, in when we have, and we've grown, praise the Lord, we've been very fortunate to grow financially every year. So as we have more resources coming in, and as we're reallocating resources with our partners, we've been able to strategically move into that area and see some really great fruit. Now, this my second answer would be, and this is something I'm just, in my 13 years of experience, this, I believe, can be the greatest tool to see the Great Commission field, maybe not in my lifetime because I'm getting ready to be 65, but certainly in your lifetime. So we were down in Florida. Josh Clark, our president, and I were down in Florida in November when we were completing the vetting of the Timothy Initiative. And so we came out of that vetting process because the Timothy Initiative had brought two of their guys from India and one of their guys from Africa you know, with COVID, you know, we haven't been able to travel internationally, which is how we complete the vetting process. Well, I'm thankful that the Timothy Initiative brought these brothers to America. We met down in South Carolina, and we was we were able to spend two hours with these brothers and ask the same questions to them. 
in a vetting role uh, that we would if they if we were sitting in their hut. And it was really a, an anointed meeting. Josh and I came out of that meeting ready to move forward with our partnership with the Timothy Initiative, which we made our first financial investments uh, in that ministry um, in December. But what what was so intriguing, Cody, that blew my mind away uh, was when we walked across the hall and Jared Nelms, their CEO, was doing a breakout session. And there was about 75 of us in there. And there was a word up on the screen uh, that was actually misspelled is the word achieve. And he said, I, you know, I know that's the word. You can tell it's achieve. I, you can, I know it's misspelled. Let me sort of, let me get to that. He said, about a year ago, Campus Crusade for Christ had developed a software called iShare. And iShare is a mapping software. They'd invested a million dollars from continent to country to block down to the district level. And they felt like they had completed the task that the Lord had given them to do. And they called a church planting organization, and who they called was TTI, the Timothy Initiative. And they asked Jared, if they gave him the software, would they complete the software down to the village level and use it? And he said they would. And they invested you know, the money that they needed to complete that. And all of a sudden, the data starts rolling in. Now, here's what's crazy about TTI. They've, they've trained, and this, just, this blows our mind in the Western culture. They've trained 60,000 Pauls and Timothys in the two countries of India and Nepal. And they began to use the software, deploy their workers to go into, wait for it, 722,000 identified villages. So basically, there's this collision between technology and boots on the ground. First of all, the guys on the ground now know where all the villages are in their area. And they go in and they ask two questions. Are there any Christians here? Or have there been any churches planted here? As the data began to to flow in, you know, what they found was this was too big for them. And so Jared starts calling some of uh, CEOs of other major ministries and starts asking, are you guys willing to be a part of this initiative? Which, by the way, the word achieve means a church in every village, A-C-H-I-E-V, a church in every village in those two countries. As the data begins to come in and as ministries begin to say yes, they created a a nonprofit called the Coalition of the Willing. And this Coalition of the Willing has come together and said, we don't care who gets the credit. We're going to be open-handed. We're going to work together. And this is nine major ministries that have come together. TTI actually donated the software to this coalition. Now, I could call all those names. It probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that at this point. But there's a coalition of these major ministries that have come together and have said, we want to take the gospel and plant a church in every village in those two countries, which is one-sixth of the world's population. So they've estimated to the best of their ability through formulas 
that there are 350,000 villages that don't have a church plant. That's a $105 million project because, listen to this, y'all, they've averaged or estimated the cost per church plant to be $300. So I looked at Josh Clark and I said, wow, because there were some guys in the room going, no way you can do that for $300. So I looked at Josh Clark and I said, well, how much did it cost us to plant a church in 2020? He said $303. So that made perfect sense to us. The date is coming in and we're seeing the color-coded data. I mean, I've literally seen grids of data that show the red villages, that show the yellow villages. The red is no Christian, no church plant. The yellow villages are believers, no church plant. The green are believers and at least one church plant. The white identified villages are villages that have been identified but haven't been canvassed yet. So this, man, this this thing is taking off, which we're ecstatic about. And so they really want to add the E, right? A church in every village, everywhere. And I believe for the first time in my life, I see how we can take the gospel, not only to every continent and country and block and district and village, but to every man, woman, boy, and girl, this beautiful collision between technology, boots on the ground, communication, collaboration, doesn't matter who gets the credit. It's all about taking the gospel further and faster to the ends of the earth. Cody, one of the things that has, that has really bothered me has been duplication of resources. And I think this is the best plan I have ever seen to make block assignments in the world where you can send a ministry into a particular block that's got trained guys inside that block and keep from multiple ministries working in one block. That's how we can accelerate it. And so I'm just, I mean, really, truly, it's it's the coolest thing I've seen since being in this space. I'm almost speechless hearing you talk about that. I have heard a number of people say, the Great Commission could be completed in our lifetime. And what always goes through my head when somebody says that is, well, somebody's probably said that to every generation that there's been, you know, since Christ came and left. And that is the clearest picture I think I've ever heard of how it's going to be done. And I I think this is the first time where I'm really seeing that, what you have clearly seen for some time now, I mean, that makes so much sense And that kind of worldwide organization and collaboration is being done in other spheres. Like you look at how the world addressed COVID over the last year and all of the tearing down barriers and just pulling it together to get it done. The fastest vaccine development in all of history and, you know, incredible dispersing of resources and cross collaboration among countries and stuff. And this is that in the Great Commission in bringing the gospel to the world. That's incredible. And I had no idea that existed, but that gets me really excited. Well, let, let me uh, let me say this, that, you know, this uh, seems hard to believe, but it's actually absolutely true. In 13 years, we've had 4,000, probably at least 
close to 4,000 anyway, a partnership request from all over the world. And we've said yes to six in 13 years, uh, two are former partners. And then of course I named the four current partners that we have. And in all these, you know, situations going back to what you were saying, Keelan, people will say, well, we're, Hey man, we want you to invest in us. We're going to reach the world for Christ. And I say, that's great. What's your plan? No, no, no. We're going to, we're going to reach the world for Christ. I said, well, that's great. What's your plan? They have no plan. This is the clearest, at least to this point, this is the clearest plan that I've seen. And it's actually a plan that I believe will work. I was talking to someone, I'm not, I, I can't talk about who this ministry is, but technology and algorithms and all those things are coming so far that you can even like pinpoint somebody sitting under a tree eating an apple. I mean, it's, it's crazy what technology has done. And the technology without the boots on the ground doesn't work. The boots on the ground does work, but it can't work at the acceleration point that it can with technology. And so, I, I mean, again, like I said, I've been in this space 13 years. I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. This is the, the coolest, most exciting plan I've seen. Did you say it was $100 million to plant a church? 105. Well, this, the calculation is, as they've done sampling and statistical data, with as things are coming in, they're estimating that there's 350,000 villages in those two countries that don't have a church. So it's just simple. I mean, you know, 350,000 villages times $300, that's sort of how you get to the 105 million. And in today's economy, you guys know that's not very much money. Yeah, that's what I that's what was just going through my head. There's individual people yeah. could probably fund that yep. project if they had the right yep. uh, vision and motivation to do that. That is incredible and that that is nothing at all these days for the scale of you know money that moves around just in the US let me tell you a cool story so the first time the coalition of the willing met so these nine these nine CEOs are sitting around a table right and they these guys are meeting and and in these two countries there are eight blocks that are kind of their pilot blocks so those blocks are identified, and four of these major ministries were working in four of the blocks that nobody else even knew. I mean, that's how duplication of resources are everywhere. I mean, what would happen, man, uh, if, if we were able to truly partner and truly have communication and collaboration where there's not these duplication of du- of resources, not just not just financial, but human and focus and all those things. And so I really do believe if we can get this right, that it can be significant. So how long has the Coalition of the Willing existed? Has this been going on for quite some time or is this pretty new? No, 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 no. Less than a, less than a year, a good bit less than a year. It's just coming out of the gate and coming out of there with with great guns. So very excited about the acceleration. You know, one of the things that they're working on is identifying who's going to work where and how that reporting is going to come in, information going to be assimilated, and how is the reporting going to come in from each one of those areas. So 
that's one of the things that was real interesting to me is they felt like it would take two years in those two countries to get the momentum and the acceleration, any bugs worked out that needed to get done. And then they would actually go on and add the E, uh, even though that initiative, they're saying is probably going to take around five years. And so, um, so anyway, that's, you know, I, I think that we're going to see that only accelerate on top of accelerate. Yeah. Especially as more ministries get on board and like, I had no idea this existed. I guess it's pretty new, but as more and more people hear about this kind of a collaborative effort, that's enormous. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Well, uh, you can see, it was funny. Josh Clark said, when we got to the end of that meeting down in South Carolina, like I said, it was in November. When we got to the end of that meeting, uh, Josh looked at me and said, I'm glad that we don't have the Dulos checkbook because I'm afraid you would empty the checkbook right here. So that's that's how exciting I was about it, you know? Yeah, well, I can see why you're excited about it. That's, I mean, I, I've never heard anything like that in the whole world of missions on this kind of a scale. And it really could never have been done to the degree that you're talking about before now. Like, this is the perfect coming together of all those different pieces, the technology, all of these ministries that have already been working and establishing with decades of experience and processes, having their own church planters, and then bringing them all together under this united purpose, which is the united purpose that Christ left us with. He left us as one capital C church to complete the Great Commission. And this is the clearest picture, I think, of us doing that. Well, I think it's the first time ministries have gotten comfortable enough being willing to share their data. I'm thankful for the fact that there's real security in the firewalls. And so there, there are security concerns. And these ministries are willing to collaborate in every way. And so if you can't completely collaborate, then there's no collaboration hardly at all. So these ministries have come together and said, we're going to be open-handed with everything and we're going to get after it. So that's that's what we've needed for a long time. And the technology really has just kind of caught up to where we can do that. Wow. Well, that's got me really excited. And I just have so many ideas running through my head right now. But I'm very excited to see where this effort goes. And I mean, we really could see the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime with that kind of an organization and technology and just the incredible manpower that already exists and of people who have a much deeper relationship with Christ and and a heart for following God and the purpose he's given them than than I could ever hope to have. <laughs> I mean, the the stories, you know, some the stories that you've shared and who many others have shared about these indigenous missionaries with such deep hearts for their neighbors and the villages and their regions. I hope to have a fraction of their faith over the course of my life. Well, I must admit, every time I go to the field, I meet these men and women that have had horrific situations and, you know, either them being beaten themselves or uh, someone in their family being martyred or I always come away from those situations where I'm always inspired, but I'm always convicted. You know, so I, I think that's kind of where we often like when we go, man, I, I want to have that kind of faith. 
it does inspire me, but it does convict me that I haven't to this point, you know. You've certainly led with a lot of faith to get to the point where you are today. I mean, just every part of your story has been listening to God along the way. And so, you know, you've been a great example to us in that and and to many others, I'm sure. Well, David, maybe you could just take a second. And for anybody who's listening, and uh, maybe this is the first time they're hearing about Dulas Partners, how can they get involved? How can they be a part of what you guys are doing? Yeah, we we uh, we really basically tell people, man, if you want to get involved in the ministry, it's kind of four ways. You know, we ask you to get involved. Uh, we ask you to become a prayer partner with us. I've traveled a lot, as you have heard, and I've never had a church planter ask me for money. And yet I've never had a church planter that I was meeting with and asked me to intercede on behalf of him and his family and his work. So so the 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 first thing we take extremely serious is asking people to pray because I mean men and women are being, you know, persecuted and martyred all over the world. Matter of fact, just three or four days ago I got an email from one of our partners uh, in Southeast Asia that one of the pastors had been beaten. Uh, he was going to kind of check on the work in a new region and the work was going well. And yet uh, some of the people there did not like the fact that he was coming and that people were being transformed. And so in the beating, he had four of his ribs broken. His shoulder was broken. His face is pretty swollen. The concern right now for this brother is they would not treat him at the hospital because of COVID. And so when he went for treatment, he couldn't get treatment. And now they're concerned about the possibility of internal injuries. And so so we get those requests all the time. And so we're funneling those out to our partners. And so probably the first step of involvement would be to go on our on our website, go to the bottom, give us your email address. Uh, that puts you on our constant contact list. Uh, that way you get the, you know, the program every month, the uh, e-newsletter. When we do start getting ready to travel back to the field, we'll be able to do field updates and reports and those kind of things. And when we do have a special prayer blast, those prayer blasts that can go out to everyone goes out through that. So, so we, we need prayer partners, man. I mean, can't have enough. And then we ask people to pray about investing in the ministry monthly. You know, about 70% of our revenue is annuitized. So we're very uh, thankful for that because whenever someone's giving monthly to the ministry, that allows us to plan. You know, it allows us to budget. It allows us to be able to deploy workers and to be able to continue to deploy those workers because those funds are regular. Now, we certainly appreciate one-time gifts or people who give quarterly or whatever. We have people that give after they've gotten a bonus or whatever. We're very thankful for that. But we ask people to pray about really becoming a financial partner and doing that monthly. The third thing we ask people to do is leverage relationships. You know, the way we grow as an organization is some, I mean, guys like you that go, man, you know, I want my, you know, my friend to know about Dulos and they tell, you tell them about Dulos. And I mean, we, we meet with people all the time that people have leveraged relationships and said, 
man, I got somebody that needs to hear this story, you know, and I'll do an, an email introduction or whatever. And then when we start traveling again, come go to the field with us. You know, we, we, we travel with each partner at least once a year and sometimes twice a year. So we do take trips to the field. Now they're not, they're not huge, large teams of people, but we kind of try to stay under the radar and yet we're not going to purposely for sure put anybody in harm's way. But, you know, like I said, you know, uh, every time we go, we open it up to our partners to go to the field, to see the work firsthand. And uh, it blows people away who are investing in the ministry and been praying for the ministry, then get on the field and see it firsthand. It just messes them up in the greatest of ways. And so that's kind of the four things, pray, give, go, leverage relationships. That's kind of the four things we ask people to pray about getting involved with. That's awesome. And for everybody listening, if you are interested in learning more about Dulas Partners, you can find their website at Dulas, that's D-O-U-L-O-S, partners.org. So go check them out. As we're wrapping up, David, we always do what's called our manager minute at the end of every episode. And just as a reminder, you know, we talk all this time about being managers, about being stewards of what God has given us, that everything that passes through our hands has always been God's and always will be God's. And so at the end of every episode, we like to give an example of what somebody can be doing with any excess that God has placed into their hands to be used or managed. And when we have guests on the show, we like to hear a suggestion that they might have of what others can be doing uh, with that excess. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners or what they might be able to do? Yeah, I would say, I think a person would be hard-pressed to find something any more fruitful to invest in than planning a church in a village that doesn't have a church. You know, $300 is not very much money. I mean, I mean, people spend more than that in a year at Starbucks, you know, so I, I, I would say for me to be able to, to invest and maybe it's not a whole $300, maybe it's a hundred dollars. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody becomes, you know, a monthly donor at a hundred dollars a month and goes, well, I just planted four churches in four villages that either had not heard the gospel or had did not have a church plan. I, I just don't see how you can get much better of an EROI than that. So that, that would be, uh, I'm sorry, eternal return on investment. That's a, a phrase that we use a lot uh, around our, our place. And so, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of excellent domestic ministries you know, in our country, you know, I just know that when we look at the fact that there are 330 million people in America and there are churches on every corner and there's access on every television show and every internet deal and the fact that there's 7.8 billion people in the world, 3.2 billion today have not had access to the gospel yet. If I had $300 or an extra $300 to invest, that's how I would invest it. Yeah, it's hard to beat that. Well, thanks so much for joining us, David. This has been an incredibly encouraging conversation. And just to hear your wisdom and experience and everything that you shared has been a huge blessing to us. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for this opportunity. I hope it will be a blessing. One of the things that you guys know is I know that God's word never returns null and void. And 
I, I know that that God's pleased with you. He's pleased with what you guys are doing. Josh Clark always says, you know, you know, gospel work is collaborative work. And if there's really no collaboration, there's really not gospel work going forward. So so I, I am thankful that you guys we're in the yoke together. I, I hope the Lord will let us do even more together in the future. And hear me, that didn't have anything to do with the dollar sign connected to it. I'm just talking about ways that we can truly work together in, in advance in the kingdom. And so it's fun to be around guys like y'all who are like-minded. So thanks for this opportunity to do this. Well, that's all we got for today, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. Even better, join the conversation on the Finish Line forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes, read stories of generosity, and ask questions about setting a financial finish line. Check it out at finishlinepledge.com slash forum. As always, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 20. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.